and welcome back to the Rally DNA podcast. Back after a brief life-enforced hiatus and committed to bring you all the latest news from the world of the WRC, providing that the news broke at some point two decades ago. Uh, joining me as ever is my font of knowledge co-host and great friend, Killian Cronin. Welcome back, buddy. How are you doing? Very good, Jamie. Uh, great to be back after, as you say, slightly life-enforced break. Things happen outside of... Um talking about old rallying and old rally cars unfortunately and yeah you gotta get out and live a bit you've been painting in your house and i've been other things and yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you know things have to move on and, and it'd be great to do this more often which we'll try and keep up a more regular uh, thing going forward but it's um yeah it's good to be doing this all the same because it's quite enjoyable exactly and thanks for your patience everyone uh, we appreciate it um First, though, uh, before we get down to discussing the nitty-gritty of this week's episode, it's time to introduce our sponsor, uh, the fabulous Slip and Grip Automotive. Now established as one of the most comprehensive and effective test facilities of its type in the UK, Slip and Grip operates the fabulous Bont Rally Stage, uh, a challenging, challenging ribbon of tarmac snakes its way through the Welsh hillside uh, and whose varied nature makes it the ideal test venue for anyone seeking to perfect their car setup or indeed conduct pre- or post-event shakedown trials. To find out more, visit www.slipandgripautomotive.co.uk and the link is in the description of this episode. Make sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook as well. So, this week's episode focuses on one of the undisputed classics of the WRC calendar, an event Killian and myself, uh, and I'd wager most of you at home listening, consider to be one of the championship stalwarts and the very definition of a proper core gravel rally, the Acropolis. First held way back in 1951, the Greek round of the WRC has had the honour of being on the champ has the honour of being one of the championship's founding events. Uh, on the original WRC Championship calendar back in 1973 and present right up to the modern day by a brief drop down to the ERC between 2014 and 2020 when it came back. Famous as one of the roughest gravel events outside of Africa, the Acropolis has long been held up as the archetypal car breaker, uh, a rally with a propensity to dole out arbitrary mechanical punishment at the drop of a spanner. It's a facet of the rally's unique character, one countless crews and teams have found to their cost over the years, with many a budding WRC hero having had their hopes dash, dashed against Greece, Greece's sun-beached mountains. Killian, what comes to mind whenever someone mentions the Acropolis rally to you? Big rocks and dust, basically. Um, I guess it's Europe's kind of safari light, although calling it light is kind of even been a bit strong because despite the length obviously reduced over the years you know it was it, it was probably second to safari in terms of you know it was one of these more marathon events and the kind of the wise head and mechanical sympathy often got you far further than outright pace obviously not helped by the fact that it was it was usually held though obviously not this year at the height of summer um you know, May, early May or late May, early June, um, where it was incredibly hot. Um, obviously one of those things that high performance motor vehicles, not the biggest fan of huge heat, um, particularly when you're boosted as well. So yeah, a, a punishing, torturous event for both car and crew. Um, and yeah, as I say, certainly probably second only to the safari in terms of car punishment and car breaking. So you might have to hat tip Turkey from 2018 for yeah. 
the big rocks and boulders than cars crawling around um, to avoid, you know, fatal suspension damage at any speed above 40 kilometers an hour. And the Cyprus could uh, could offer a few as well back in the day. But mm. uh, yeah, absolutely, I think for me, it's um, it's that shot of Ari Vatanen in the uh, RSA, RS Escort, the Mark II, uh, meandering up a hill with the, the monastery on that uh, tiny sort of like obelisk of rock set up high in the mountain. It's got up into the sky, rather. Uh, it's incredible. It did did challenge uh, for one of those most picturesque events in terms of backdrops and big rooster tails of dust with a beautiful glistening Mediterranean bay in the background or a, a monastery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it was always a beautiful one. Spot on. So the running of the Acropolis I've chosen is the 2003 event, uh, the one famous for providing Ford's Marco Martin with his first victory at WRC level and the first trip to the top step of the podium for everyone's favourite post-escort M-Sport creation, the 03 Focus WRC. Uh, I chose this particular event because of the deep affection I have for both Martin and this particular generation of Focus, and because of my belief that both could, had things worked out only slightly differently, have achieved even more at this level than they did. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that this uh, this particular Acropolis was the penultimate works appearance in the WRC, the greatest rally car of all time, uh, the Skoda Octavia WRC. Uh, so it's always been a gala day in the Arkell household. <laughs> Even if that's just me. <laughs> With a birthday cake. <laughs> it's, as good, it's as good a reason as any to, to feature the event. <laughs> Bloody Fabius. <laughs> Um, so, uh, how things stood coming into uh, the, the events, that was the, uh, the the fifth round of the WRC. Uh, going into the Acropolis, Richard Burns sat atop the championship table with uh, 32 points from four events, uh, two points ahead of Gronholm in second. Sainz was third on 24 points, with Loeb just behind on 17, uh, sitting the same number as teammate McRae. Solberg and Martin were in sixth and seventh with 13 points apiece, uh, with all Tommy McAdin Bring it, bring it up the charge in eighth. Um, and in terms of teams and crews, uh, we'll start with, with with M Sport Ford because why wouldn't we? Um, 2003 marked the beginning of a brave new era for the M Sport operation with a drastic reduction in financial support from Ford and with it the loss of both Carlos Sainz and Colin McRae to Citroen. Uh, in their place uh, came a newly promoted Marco Martin and Francois Duval. Both, of course, up-and-comers with plenty of potential, uh, but probably fair to say without the swagger and confidence only acquired through repeated success at uh, WRC level. Martin had started to make big strides in that direction, of course. Uh, he'd cemented his position as unofficial team leader uh, through a barnstorming drive the previous year, or a handful of barnstorming drives. drives uh, the, the most famous one probably being the battle with Petter Solberg on Rally GB. Uh, I remember watching that being uh, thoroughly eye-catching. Of course, he ultimately had to settle for second, uh, but it wasn't for lack of trying. Uh, the team obviously had to reduce on a somewhat reduced budget uh, because of the uh, the loss of Martini money. Um, but its uh, ability to develop a, a rally car was still world class, a world class, a point proved by the debut of the new shape Focus uh, two rounds before in New Zealand. Engine issues had forced Martin Martin out of both that rally and Argentina, but there was no denying that the new car had performance in spades and plenty of potential. The Christian Varal developed machine sported many changes, uh, famously, most obvious being a radical and much more aggressive aero setup. 
Uh, it also had a revised Cosworth engine with new management, new rear suspension and improved weight distribution, uh, all of which served to make this perhaps the most radical looking rally car since the demise of Group B. Um, Killian, what did you remember? I'm sure you do remember the launch of this particular focus. Uh, what, what did you think of it at the time? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was still reasonably young, but I do remember it well because it was kind of, yeah, I, I was fully into WRC at that point. And, um, you know, I'd always liked the, the previous focus, despite it was, you know, I think although it is one of the more ordinary in inverted commas looking rally cars, I think that was what was so great about it because the, the, the Mark 1 focus was a great looking three door hatchback and the rally version looked reasonably close to what you saw on the road. So I think that was appealing in its own right. This one was such a radical departure then, but it seemed to work really well. Like it just, you know, it was like it had been given all the steroids and um, it was, you know, it didn't really follow the trend of the day. Um, you know, a wing of that size on a hatchback of that kind of design, it just seemed like a, we were used to big wings on the tree box cars, but this just looked really, really, really fucking cool, you know? <laughs> and and I, I was quite a fan of the O3 liveries as well. Personally. Yes. Absolutely. I, I think the, the, the earlier the, the Martini and the Valvoline stuff didn't always work. They kind of got it right a couple of times. The colours were nice, but it didn't mm, they didn't always nail it on, I think, with the, the earlier focus foci. Um but yeah, really like the O3 focus and, and big Marco Martin fan as well. Um so yeah, no, I really, really liked it. I thought it was awesome. Hold on, I I know what you mean though. I mean, it's the 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 O one O two cars look very very restrained and demure, and then to go from that to the the big mouth O uh, three uh, car was something else. So along with uh, Duval and Martin, there were uh, a couple of O two spec focuses for Young Guns, Lapbell and Hervenen. And as as you said, M Sport uh, also chose this rally to debut new liveries uh, following a tie up with BP and Castrol, the former for Duval's car, the latter for Martin's. Uh, it was a move born uh, more from financial necessity as much as anything else, but of course it gifted us two of the most beloved rally liveries of the modern age. Um, and I, I didn't think I really appreciated how, certainly at the time, how much of a, a body blow losing Martini must have been for M-Sport. And, and of course, it's about the same time that Ford decided to you know, cut back its financial involvement by about a third or something as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, financial... Uh, difficulties or a certainly hand-to-mouth existence isn't something that uh, M Sports uh, isn't new to M Sport. it would say. <laughs> I think I think as well like losing Signs and McRae is going to lose you a lot of cash in its own right obviously their wages were definitely monstrous compared to the other guys but in terms of running and you know running a world championship and preparing these top flight cars with the hopes of victory that money isn't so much when you have the sponsorship coming in and they, they obviously McRae and Science attracted quite a lot of money that more than paid their wages in their own right whereas you know Martin at that point I'm sure he brought something to the table obviously other than his immense talent but wasn't quite the commercial draw that Signs and McRae were for sure Oh exactly I mean we're only a few years out from um, McRae famously being paid uh, a million pounds wasn't it you know and, and him appear, appear him appearing as the main the main draw in that Focus road car advert in 99 so yeah definitely a big sea change Citroen still very much one of the WRC's newbies in 2003 Citroen had nevertheless wasted no time in putting its rivals on notice by winning in Germany with Sebastian Loeb the previous year not to mention the Frenchman's Monty performance a win in all but name at uh, Loeb 
We've been joined by Sainz and McRae for 2003, uh, and this cemented Citroen's lineup as uh, probably the most complete in the championship, championship, which, when coupled with the Zara WRC's newfound ability to compete for the win on all surfaces, made it one of the sport's coming threats, even if most had yet to grasp just how potent an entity the team now was. Um, Citroen's triple threat had already shown its potency in 03, uh, first with a crushing 1-2-3 for Lord McRae and Saints on their Monty, uh, followed by another win in Turkey a month later, this one for Saints. Um, Citroen's lineup for the Acropolis that year comprised four cars, Azara each for Saints, McRae and Loeb, and another for a young Danny Sola, um, who I was picked to be uh, a world rally champ, well, maybe not a world champ, but certainly a, a future star, which shows how little I, I know. know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but your your list of future stars that we've run out of years for them to win in, you know. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I, you know, if I, I choose a scattergun approach, if I if I give everyone a leg up, then eventually I'm gonna get lucky. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh this was McCray seeking to secure his fourth Acropolis win on the bounce, uh, which is an incredible stat. Uh, obviously one that ultimately went awry. Spoilers. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I knew McRae had won here a lot, but for some reason, that's sort of mentally tuned out the three on the bounce. You know, between, mm. it's a, yeah, fair play. Yeah, I, yeah. Ford are the winningest team at Acropolis, aren't they? And, and what gave them the edge in later years over the likes of Toyota and Lancia had a fair few wins, but it was those run of the, the streak of McRae victories that elevated them beyond that. I think yeah, they have and- 13 victories or something like that in Acropolis overall. Um, so, yeah. That was always the focus is uh, Trump card, even when it was a bit slower early in the early in his career. It wasn't always hard as nails, mm. apart from certain points in 1999. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Subaru. Um, Subaru's WRC fortunes had fluctuated since its driver's championship with Richard Burns two years previously. Uh, and while the decision to poach Tommy Mackinnon from Mitsubishi to replace the Englishman had brought the team vast experience, the four-time world champion had struggled to adapt to life in blue so far. Uh, indeed, the Finns' less than consistent performances throughout the year would play a part in preventing Subaru from fighting for the manufacturer's crown in 2003, uh, with Mackinnon struggling to adjust to the foibles of the Impreza after so long competing in Group A lances that effectively been built around him. Mackinnon's best result of the year would prove to be second overall in Sweden, uh, perhaps a poor award for a man who'd so recently re- rewritten the rallying record books uh, and perhaps evidence that his decision to call time on the professional career at the end of the year was the correct one. While Solberg found that year's impress far more to his liking, come the Acropolis, he had little to show for it, with the best result of third overall in New Zealand, a finish he'd ultimately replicate in Greece. As we all know though it'd be the second half of the season where Solberg would truly set about staking his claim on the 03 driver's crown. Solberg's ultimate success went a long way towards proving that there was still life in the Impreza concept but in truth and perhaps with the benefit of hindsight it's clear that this owed as much to Petter's incredible skill as did the car itself. Even in 03 it was apparent that the overriding trend was for WRC cars to become smaller and hatchback based with cars at the 206 Focus and incoming Fabia leading the way at the expense of booted veterans like the Impreza as much to you know everyone decent chagrin I'm sure because we all like a saloon. Mm. Bring um, back tree box saloon rally cars the, the, the drum we're beating constantly on this podcast. Rolls off the tongue and I'm sure they're all listening to this. Tree box saloon rally cares tobacco sponsorship and 
a, a dribbling alcohol sponsorship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So are we are we only like a couple of steps away from vape sponsorship coming in to be the new tobacco sponsorship? It's not as cool either. Even if it does get proved, it gives you popcorn lung. It's not got the same sort of, you know, no. high tar. Timo Timo Salonen with a with a disposable oh. with a disposable vape. Oh. Be like Timo, get a health bear. <laughs> bubble coming, bubble gum infused smoke filling a yeah, yeah. I like blue sour raspberry. Do you? Oh, yeah, doesn't no, no, no. no. <laughs> Speaking of Peugeots, uh, or salad and Peugeot, Peugeot, um, two sixes, though it can't have been known at the time, 2003 marked the beginning of Peugeot's dethronement from the top of the WRC tree by its in house arrival and PSA stablemate Citroen. Um, still blessed with one of the finest lineups around in Marcus Gronholm and Richard Burns, the team never. Nevertheless, found itself uh, with uh, a somewhat elderly car in a 206, uh, a machine with an increasingly narrow window of development available to it. And this, despite the hefty injection of cash brought about by the inking of a new headline sponsorship deal with Marlborough in the lead up to the season. So straight away back to the flags. <laughs> the 206 was still effective, of course, effective enough to win four times over the course of the year, three for Gronholm, one for Panizzi. Uh, but its period as the de facto fastest and most complete package in the championship was nearing its end. And the lion's share of development work had moved instead to its replacement, the 307cc. Uh, I, I, I had lion's share as a pun in my notes for deciding you, to decide. Yeah. So oh. much. So oh. just... no, that's that's the second time you've used that lion's share pun on this podcast. So you, had two, you had two Peugeot puns in one episode. Well, I don't know which one it was. Um, it's interesting that like in 2003, the, the 206 is like... Deltona in 93 almost you know it's it's reaching the end you know although obviously after a shorter time because the rate of advancement was so much more aggressive but it's kind of like that in a way I think is it uh is that foreshadowing is it fair to say you've been reading up on Deltonas and, and yeah. <laughs> absolutely right <laughs> um Nevertheless, the team remained competitive. In fact, that's probably an unfair understatement, what with Gronholm having won three times and Burns leading the championship as the WRC pitched up in Greece. And this despite uh, the Englishman having failed to win so far. Uh, his famous consi famous consistency continued to pay dividends and would, obviously, until the end of the year. Peugeot fielded three works, 206 in Greece, uh, a car each for Gronholm Burns, uh, another for Harry Ovenpera, uh, while Bozian, Bozian Racing supplied a trio of older examples for Panizzi, Roman Cresta, and, sorry everyone, Yuso uh, Picaliasto. Uh, believe it or not, that was actually a Finn, not a Greek, so I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> Hyundai? <laughs> the 2003 season spelled the end for the struggling Hyundai rally operation uh, with a bud with budget constraints and friction between the board back in Seoul and MSD in Milton Keynes finally becoming too much to bear. The team, of course, withdrew from the WRC halfway through the year after Rally Australia uh, and incurred a fine as a result, while the whole acrimonious affair left a bad taste in the mouths of all parties and would sour Sir Hyundai's relationship with the championship for a decade to come. The underdeveloped and underfunded accent had shown its age numerous times throughout 03 already, by being both off the pace and chronically unreliable. Regular drivers Armin Schwartz and Freddie Leutz had finished just twice apiece, uh, with the former's eighth overall 
on the Monty Zeph classification uh, and things wouldn't get a great deal better uh, in the remaining rounds for the car. Um, despite this, the team managed to supply duo of Accent Evo 3s for Schwartz and Loics uh, and a pair of semi-works cars for Jussi Valimaki and Manfred Stoll. Uh, and believe it or not, Stoll's is the only one that would complete the event. Uh, and finally, Skoda. Uh, both Didier Oriol and Tony Gardemeister announced that they were excited to debut the Fabia WRC later in the year. Uh, so, so as far as I'm concerned, the Torrid Acropolis the pair endured was ample payback for daring to besmirch the good name of the Octavia uh, automotive god king. The the official um, uh, the official favourite World Rally Car of all time, as voted by the adoring public across the world. A totally unimpeachable internet poll. It's uncorruptible. Uncorruptible. I misspoke. My apologies. Rudy Giuliani <laughs> wouldn't have been able to make any impact on it. No, no. I, although I have got an image of Diddy Ariel with some hair dye running down his, his head and the outside. But he's just putting, thing. he's just rubbing hair dye into his face. From Castrol 10W. Just painting himself. <laughs> it's just body paint when you have no hair. Um. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, in all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, why would it be wholly incorrect to suggest that the Octavia had shrugged off the previous four and a half seasons with ease? It was still an impressively competitive package certainly when compared to the perennial wooden spoon rivals at Hyundai. Oriel had battled hard to take sick overall last time out in Argentina, while Gardemeister had gone one better, the superb fifth place on the fast-flowing roads of New Zealand a few weeks before that, uh, which is, again, super super impressive. Not not Octavia country, really. Um, no. Getting better as the years passed, like a, a fine vintage. Uh, <laughs> uh, so... Uh, leg one uh, comprised eight stages, uh, totaling 145.74 kilometres, um, the longest being uh, SS5, uh, the Eliata to Zeli run at 34.68 kilometres. Um, there was a super special stage uh, at uh, Lilia, uh, which was cancelled, uh, the final one in SS8, because of crowd control and dust issues. Which you'd think, you know, dust issues, Acropolis. I mean, you know, ugh, anyway... I mean, it um, com- comes at the territory. I think so, right? <laughs> um, leg two, 148.71 kilometres, um, uh, with key stages being another pass of uh, through Eliati to Zeli, uh, and um, the Boxite, Bohite stage, B-A-U-X-I-T-E-S, which I thought was what you need to make make steel, I believe. But anyway, must be a different... Uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was I was trying to match that one up right? as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it steel or is there some kind of something? Maybe it's aluminium. I don't know. Yeah. Answers in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> Any metallurgists? I'm listening. <laughs> um, leg three, 105.04 kilometers uh, with uh, SS17 to SS22, um, with double run through the famous Tarzan stage, each 20.65 kilometers. So, on to leg one. Uh, Richard Burns was first on the road on the first stage, which is Pavigliani, uh, and as such had to play the role of road sweeper. Always a massive disadvantage on gravel, but especially so in an event like the Acropolis. And as such, he'd end the stage uh, a fairly despondent 12th overall. Uh, though not as despondent as Loeb, whose rally came to an ignominious end three, 11 kilometres into the first stage with uh, engine failure. 
uh, led to a very pissed off looking Frenchman and also a disconcertingly youthful looking one, which of course just makes perfect sense considering how long ago it was. But I don't know about you, I'm so used to sort of seeing Loeb these days looking kind of like a a wise middle-aged chap as opposed to a fresh-faced gymnast. Um, yes, <laughs> which, which of course he is now, which is terrifying, but yeah. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> There's been many instances where I, I I bemoan the fact that 2003 is 20 years ago. This, mm. this is one of those events that really does cut me to the quick. Um, Armin Schwartz also retired on the stage after about five kilometres. Uh, an errant stone shredded the cam belt on his axle, instantly killing the engine and putting him out the rally. Uh, just desserts for deserting the Octavia, I say. Um, Solberg, it is, it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> scurrying back to, to, to Czechoslovakia the second that Fabio was debuted next year uh, or when uh, Oriol vacated it rather uh, Solberg's formative charge was unbind, undone by a stall uh, then a mild understeer off a corner followed by a slow start due to heat soak it was only 7th quickest overall as a result uh, though Martin, Marco Martin was on a flyer from the get-go 2nd quickest overall 1.9 seconds. Uh, he was only denied the top spot on that first stage by 1.9 seconds. Uh, the victory going to teammate Francois Duval, whose stage wing could have been a complete walkover, indeed a crushing one, and perhaps would have been. He was up 13 seconds with less than a kilometre to go uh, before going straight on at a junction uh, and losing all that time, but still won the stage. Um, bit of a microcosm for, for Duval's career, that incredibly blisteringly quick, but perhaps prone to a bit of brain fade now and again. Errors of judgment on the, on the other occasion. Yes, yes. Um, especially SS, SS2, uh, McRae changed his tyres before the stage and then struggled to get the Zara to fire up. Uh, again, he sort of blamed. He checked in five minutes late and incurred a 50 second, 50 second time penalty as a result. Uh, and thus, all hopes of an outright win were pretty much quashed there and then. Um, the incident typified the sort of malady the Acropolis specialised in throwing up. Uh, a result of the intense heat and punishing roads. Uh, the Scot channels his frustrations to set the second quickest time through SS2, but was now only 17th overall. Martin sees the initiative to win the stage by 2.7 seconds from McRae, with Duval this time only third fastest. Uh, he sees the, he thus sees the lead and demoted his teammate to second overall with a 2.5 second advantage. Um, Burns still continued to struggle. He was only 14th quickest through the second stage, dropped 12th overall. Uh, he not helped by a partial spin. Uh, and, of course, the aircon fitted to his Persia, well, the Persia's, not everyone else, uh, actually misting the screen in, in the morning mist or the morning, the cooler morning temperatures. Uh, he blamed uh, that on his for losing five seconds as a result. Uh, something of a mixed blessing, aircon, even in the heat of, uh, of Greece. Every, everyone knows the first thing you've got to bin when you're making the car faster is the aircon, surely. Isn't that the, the golden <laughs> immediately remove the aircon uh, <laughs> compressor and um, instant speed? You forgot drilling the airbox as well. Oh, well, yes. Yeah. Yes. Panizzi, Makanin and Oriol all had good runs through SS2 and the fourth, fifth and sixth quick as a result. This moved Macken into third overall, uh, 1.7 seconds ahead of Gronholm. Uh, Freddie Leutz's accent had a suspension up for it fail midway through the second stage. And while he was able to limp to the end of it, uh, there was no way he was making it through the third and had to retire midway through. 
for his part, Martin was second fastest through the third stage and could have won had he not slid wide and shed the precious seconds, which allowed Robin Perra to win the stage. 2.8 seconds ahead of Marco Martin with Deval third, enough to move the Finn the third overall uh, and with it the best place Peugeot at the time. Gronholm was fourth fastest on this stage to uh, relieve third from Mackinnon, while Solberg was able to charge up to fifth with Robin Perra in sixth overall by dint of his uh, his speedy times through the stage. Um, and indeed, Robin Perra would win the fourth stage, this time uh, by 1.1 seconds from the resurgent McRae, uh, Duval holding station with third fastest. Um, it wasn't to last a great deal, though, because Gronholm slid wide on SS4 uh, and was only 14th fastest, slipped sixth overall as a result, promoting Panizzi, so much for the tarmac specialist, to fifth overall. SS5 was the aforementioned Alatia to Zelli, uh, the longest stage of the rally at 34.68 kilometres, uh, and a chance for Rovan Perra to again shine, setting the quickest time, this time by 2.5 seconds, uh, moving to second overall as a result, albeit 9.2 seconds down on Martin. With little to lose, McRae threw caution to the wind, uh, and he was blisteringly quick here, second fastest, and enough to make move to eighth overall in the, on the, in the reckoning. Uh, this despite a costly time-bleeding spin, uh, another of those what-might-have-been moments for McRae, which which his career seemed to specialise in towards the end, bless him. Um, Burns temporarily lost third gear near the beginning of the stage and was thus only 11th quickest, and this would be something of a, a perennial bugbear for, for the 206s in this event, with, with most of the uh, the Peugeot guys losing gears at one point or another, uh, though not for very long, seemingly. Um Gronholm back on form, third fastest through the Eliata to Zelli stage, climbed third overall, uh, albeit 15.5 seconds off Robin Perra in second. And this cleared the way for one of the most iconic moments from recent Acropolis history, um, when Marco Martin's bonnet sprung open uh, on a deep pothole. Uh, not only did this rob him of visibility, it robbed the focus of any real ability to cool its interior, uh, and both Martin and Park baked as a result. That the Estonian still managed to set the fourth fastest time and retain the lead, despite this speaks volumes about his talents. Um, it's also this stage, uh, SS5, that Duval crashed out of the rally, uh, went in too hot on a right-hander, and he blamed uh, the Aduff pace notes on uh, on Trevor. We need to probably get him get him on the podcast to, to ask about the, the truth on that, I think. But, uh, yeah. Prevo famously as well, not not uh, not a man to hold his tongue or on, on such things. No, not diplomatically quiet. Very very uncensored, candid chap by all accounts. If <laughs> that, if that infamous episode of Absolute Rally is is to be taken as an example, on an episode, <laughs> it is one one of the greats. Um. SS six Solberg uh, quickest this time by seven two point seconds from Gron. Home um, and the Norwegian staking a claim to the overall victory managed to climb to fourth overall as a result. Um, Rovan Perra, however, this time third quickest, still strong in second place, second of place overall, uh, 6.6 seconds down the leader, leader uh, Martin, uh, who was only fifth quickest through the sixth stage. Clearly, the Estonian was driving gingerly well within his limits, doubtless with one eye still firmly fixed on the finish of the rally in two full days' time. Um, Hervenen suffered suspension. Mentioned failure on his focus on SS6 and retired soon after. Um, 
Mackinac was fourth fastest uh, on this stage, which is quick enough to overtake Sainz. Sorry, that was on SS6, rather. Um, although this was uh, not for not to last because the Spaniard managed to reverse this on the very next stage by being fourth fastest. Uh, so the two effectively swapped places, then swapped back again, um, which brought us to SS8, the special stage, which is cancelled, as, as I said, due to a mix of uh, crowd control issues and dust, which sounds like quite a potent combination. Um, <laughs> who knows? Uh, the the final malady uh, on the first day was uh, when Gronholm's fuel pump died on the return drive from the final stage to the service park, uh, refused to prime again, and he retired on the spot. Um, very ignominious end for the Finn, uh, who appeared to be driving himself into the rally and could perhaps have challenged Martin for the win, had fate uh, intervened differently. Leg two. Solberg was hot off the blocks, uh, was fastest on the opening Mendencita stage, uh, enough to move up to third overall, uh, 13.2 seconds down on Robin Perra in second, uh, uh, who is himself four seconds off Martin's lead. Um, Robin Perra was third, third fastest despite losing second gear for a spell in stage. Um, another instance of the intermittent gear loss in the Peugeot making itself felt in Greece. Um, Burns and McRae set the exact same time to tie for sixth fastest on SS9, both recording a time of 11 minutes, uh, five seconds, point two, uh, enough to lift uh, the latter to sixth overall at Penitti's expense, while Burns was able to consolidate his hold on eighth. Makadin's charge on the ninth stage was hindered by dust from Burns, uh, but he still managed to be fifth quickest and thus retained fifth overall, uh, though he lost a little bit of time to sign in fourth. Um, SS10, the box seats, bolite stage, uh, a mix of smooth uh, gravel and a bit of tarmac, a bit of a Acropolis class classic, and one Solberg clearly relished. Fastest again to take second overall. Um, Burns and McRae again set identical times, third fastest for both of them, uh, enough to lift McRae to fifth overall and Burns to seventh, uh, while Sainz uh, was able to climb third overall. Uh, now out now almost 18 seconds uh, ahead of Mackinnon in fourth. Robin Paris to uh, 206 uh, lost second and then third gear on SS9 and SS10 and plummeted to eighth overall as a result. Finn was only 18th quickest through SS10, um, which must have been gutting, seeing as he was really in top form for this event. I mean, it's still a wonder how his, how his career only has one WRC victory. And, you know, it's one of those things that when you watch him at the time, then it's just... It's just not fair. I mean, I suppose that's rallying, but uh... and and it wasn't like he was in uncompetitive cares for a lot. Like, I mean, he he had a few of those too, but he had ample good machinery under him also. Precisely that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and clearly, plenty of talent. <laughs> yeah. Um, Marco Martin found his own hopes of a charge on the tenth stage hampered by dust from Robin Perez's sickly Peugeot, uh, and he was only fifth fast as a result, albeit still leading by six point seven seconds. Um, the Estonian fought back on the very next stage, uh, winning Drossohori by three point eight seconds from Sainz, um, helped by a little uh, last minute deal with the FIA that uh, was between M Sports and them saying that. Uh, Martin could start three minutes behind Robin Perra instead of two. Uh, that's allowed the dust to settle a bit. Um, one of those things that makes you realise perhaps how, how long ago 2003 was. 
this proved to be something of a bogey stage for Solberg. Uh, his steering wheel came loose mid-stage here in 2002, and in 2003 he'd shear a front drive shaft, drive shaft and dropped to fifth overall as a result. Um, this being uh, a boon for Sainz, Mackinac and McRae, all of whom went up to second, third and fourth overall, respectively. Though Martin's lead was now over half a minute strong. Um, one of the interesting things about reviewing the, uh, the the footage from the time is that I mean a lot of the sort of weird service park fillery stuff they have could be a bit cringe, certainly when viewed through modern eyes. But I quite enjoyed them going around the uh, service park asking what custom designs different crews had on their helmets. Um, and, and so, yeah, some of them were fairly blasé, but I quite liked McRae showing up his saltire and saying, I'm certainly nigging away one with a Union Jack on it, you know, which I quite liked because I don't know. I obviously a very proud Scott Colin, but uh, I never kind of uh, heard him sort of voice his antipathy towards the Union flag. And, you know, fair enough, I suppose. <laughs> Interesting one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Stefan Frevo, for what it's worth, was was chuckling quite a lot about having antipathy so towards Bruno or towards <laughs> antipathy towards Francois Duval. <laughs> Actually, he was on about how he had a picture of Sylvester the cat from Sylvester and Tweety Pie, whatever, of saying how how funny he found it. Which I mean, the man is clearly hysterically funny, but perhaps that wasn't one of his funniest moments. Maybe it has more of a clout in Belgium. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> something we're missing out on there. Belgians can can write in and tell us what the joke is. Um, on the twelve stage, Robin Perrett back to the four. Uh, he was able to win the stage by one point six, one point one seconds. Sorry, from resurgent Richard Burns. Uh, the latter not sixth overall, despite the gearbox issues of his own. Uh, McRae fourth fastest to take third overall off of Mackinnon. Uh, the Finn is something of a slump and would lose fourth overall to teammate Solberg on the very next stage. Um, Martin also back on form for the longest test of the rally, the rerun. Um, he won the stage by five seconds from Solberg to increase his overall lead to a hefty 40.5 seconds over science with McRae in third, albeit half a minute down on his teammate. Martin then put the boot in by uh, setting fastest stage times on stages 14 and 15 to put the victory beyond doubt, barring issues, of course. He'd end the second leg with a lead of 55.8 seconds over science in second. Um, <clears throat> this was the stage on SS16 where Oriol was able to tie the second fastest stage time overall with Marco Martin in the big Skoda, which uh, which was impressive. Um, and yeah, obviously had to have to be mentioned because it's me. Uh, <laughs> a resurgent Solberg was second fastest on SS14 and SS15 to overhaul um, overhaul McRae for third. Then onto the third and final leg. Solberg was able to uh, carry on the the form he'd taken into the from the last from the last leg into the third. He was able to win the first stage of the third leg by almost ten seconds for Marco Martin, uh, and thus increasing his grip on third overall in the process. Uh, however, reliability was always a concern given the heat and the punishing nature of the event. Not that Martin cared, uh, because he ended uh, SS17 the De Castro stage with a lead of over a minute, one of course he'd hold until the end. Burns lost second gear on uh, SS17, yet still managed to tie with uh, fourth fastest with Mackinnon, aided by the Finn having a small spin on the same stage. Um, 
Solberg was fastest of all on SS18. The the run the first run through Tarzan, um, this time by 1.7 seconds, uh, trimming Sainz's advantage to 0.4 seconds. Uh, Burns also enjoyed the Tarzan stage. Uh, he closed with he was third quickest to close within 0.4 seconds of fifth place Makinen. Um, the fin, the fin could only manage sixth fastest thanks to a poor tire choice. Uh, and this kind of sets up a, a really good battle between Macadam and Burns for, for the remainder of the, the final leg. Um, Martin had a minor wobble on the 18th stage uh, when his handling was uh, was very woolly, uh, later revealed to be a broken anti-roll bar. He was only fifth fastest through that stage, but considering he still had an insanely massive margin, it, it wasn't the be-all and end-all. Um, Macadam dug deep to win the 19th stage by half a second from Science with McRae just 0.3 seconds back in third. Um, the 90s gang back together. Quite like the idea of having these three, you know. I also find it interesting that looking back, it's clear there was a, a big changing of the guard in this season. I think 03 is, is the season that I kind of viewed that, or at least was aware of at the time. And, and I think even at the time, it kind of felt that they were sort of moving off the stage a little bit. It's going to draw an interesting comparison, actually, to my selection later on, because there's a few characters going to cross over, but at very different stages of their careers. Grand. But yeah, it's it's definitely, that was it. I mean, like once once McRae and Signs had done that Citroen stint, that was kind of where you can really tangibly draw a line. Um, You know, the the photo of them in the, in the at the table oh, with, with yeah, the, ash, yeah. the ashtray. Um signing for their huge amount of <laughs> French money. <laughs> um but that was that was it. That was kind of that, that that was one of those things that signaled that that was their twilight time and the the, the younger guns, the new generation that could get, better get to grips with these sort of cares had really arrived in force as evidenced by the thoughts on this event. I think it was made all the uh, the, the more apparent by the fact that you know lobe emerging so fully formed you know, it yes. wasn't, there was much of a, a, a sort of uh, bleed through, was it? it no, was just, the old guard stopped winning because Loeb was there to to win everything. It, there wasn't like a transitionary period as such. Precisely, Mackinac's stage win helped deny Burns, who is now two point four seconds fifth overall. Um, Solberg only fourth fastest through the stage. There was less than a second covering the top four. Uh, so the of, of, on that stage, uh, until the Norwegian moved to within 0.9 seconds of Science's second place overall, uh, and then Solberg would then win the second, the following stage, the twentieth one by 5.8 seconds, swipes second from Science. The Spaniard only managing third quickest, uh, and with it five point seconds, five point six seconds off the weed Norwegian for now. Um, Panizzi was second fastest on SS20, not bad for a mere tarmac specialist, um, while Mackinnon was uh, able to be quicker than Burns to increase his advantage to just under eight seconds with two stages to go. The final two stages brought an impressive amount of drama at the top. Um, first with uh, with Burns, who was fourth fastest through the stage with Mackinnon only sixth, the two separated by 0.1 seconds. Um, McRae lost power uh, and his engine died a few kilometres into SS21, um, throttle issues being uh, being the, the foot of the root of the problem. It was only 22nd fastest and fell to 8th overall as a result, proving that the Acropolis is a fickle beast and had seemingly had quite enough with uh, with the Scott winning at, uh, as, at will. Solberg went off on a fast left-hander, then hit McRae's dust, 
Uh, and as a result, he was only seventh fastest and lost any chance of fighting Sainz the second, although he still managed to hold third overall until the end. Probably considered himself quite lucky to be still on the podium, given the uh, the dramas. <clears throat> Excuse me. And with such a reasonably small margin, giving all that um, that had uh, happened to him as well, because he'd nearly come a cropper. Precisely. And and it's kind of another, maybe it's another, it's, it's yeah, I, I, I kind of still, I forget how, how wild Solberg could be in his early career. And I'm not saying this is his early career, but I suppose it's closer to the the start than it is the end, you know, and he's still a young gun with a bit rough around the edges. You know, oh, I yeah. kind of consider him to be the, the fully completed all-rounder that he became. Um, <clears throat> uh, Sainz was 2.8 seconds fastest ahead of Panizzi on SS21, uh, enough to secure second once and for all for the Spaniard. Um, the final bit of final stage drama... Burns second overall with Macklin only seventh fastest on the final stage, slow enough to give fourth to the Englishman by 5.7 seconds, which in itself was enough for Burns to retain his lead in the championship, just, um, which is kind of, I suppose, the story of, of Burns's spell at Peugeot, really, you know, uh, keep keeping alive a, a title, a title fight, despite um, not winning much, just pure consistency and, and being a, a smooth all-rounder of a driver. Yeah, just the kind of the typical Burnsness of of it. Uh, it really shone through in the Peugeot days as much as it did anywhere else. And of course, <clears throat> feels a bit, you know, it feels almost wrong to to not, you know, mention. Of course, it all ended so so very sadly a few months later, you know, and it could could have been very different. Which of course left Marco Martin to to win his uh, his first ever WRC win by uh, his, his forty six seconds from Carlos Sainz in second, Peter Solberg in third. Burns in fourth, Macklin in fifth, Robin Pera in sixth, Benizzi in seventh, McRae in eighth, Oriol in ninth, and a young Yari Mati Latvala in tenth overall. So yeah, like it's I, I don't know. I, partly I selected it, like as I said, because uh, being a Marco Martin fan and loving that focus, but also I, I, I vaguely remembered or did remember that the the bonnet incident and and it just being such a big deal. I think there was. Rally XS, which I was subscribed to at the time, they did like a, a big double pull-out poster of of you know of him still managing to set fourth fastest time despite peering through the the hole beneath the the gap beneath the 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 bonnet and the the scuttle. You know, very impressive stuff. And I think it, I think it is probably one of the most iconic, certainly Acropolis moments of the modern era. Um, yeah. No, I don't think you'll find any argument for me on that front. I th- I, th- I think. <laughs> Acropolis, it's always been good, but I think in in more recent times, and obviously there was a break for a while, it didn't seem to produce as much magic as it probably should have. But that may have been as much to do with the state of the championship in the latter years of Acropolis before its return um, than anything else, perhaps. Good point. Good point. Um, so yes, that's that. That's me. Two thousand three. Um, Killian, what what have you chosen for your uh, your trip back in time? Your Greek epic. Thanks, Jamie. That's a great, great coverage of the old three event there. Um, some really good stuff in that, so hopefully I can match it. I've gone back a decade prior yeah, for the 1993 running of the Acropolis Rally. The 40th edition of this World Championship staple would take place between Sunday the 30th of May and Wednesday the 2nd of June 1993. An unusual thing to consider when we think of modern rallying, which obviously usually kicks off on a Thursday, finishing on a Sunday. It was the sixth round of 13 in the 93 World Rally Championship, the first year in which all rounds counted towards manufacturers and drivers' points. Though by this stage as well, 
you'd very much expect the teams not to contest all the rounds, and, and they certainly didn't. They picked and chose their events still. Um, though the days of the event having over 800 kilometers of stage distance were gone, in the early 90s, this was very much still an endurance event. Safari light of Europe, if you like, as I mentioned earlier, where a wise head, a reliable car, and a high degree of mechanical sympathy was as crucial, if not more so, than outright pace and the searing heat of a Greek summer, with the potential for a rally-ending rock just lurking around every corner. 1993 would have competitors fight it out over 545 kilometres of stages, slightly down on the previous year's 564 kilometres in the heart of Greece, across rocky, dusty mountain roads in searing temperatures that would affect both man and machine, with a total event distance of over 1,600 kilometres, starting within sight of the most famous Acropolis of all, the Acropolis of Athens. The previous nine years have been dominated by Lancia, winning five times since 1983, with Audi, Peugeot and Toyota interrupting occasionally, and four previous winners will contest a 93 event. Time now, I guess, to have a look at the top challengers for honours this time out. First off, Ford Motorsport. The Group A Ford Escort RS Cosworth was a big step up from its predecessor, the Sierra, in almost every way. Now, arguably, arguably for the first time since the retirement of the Group 4 Escort, Ford had a car that could potentially be world-beating, even if Borham didn't have quite the same resources and budget as its, at its disposal as Toyota, for instance. Though the car was pretty much bang on out of the box, its compromised test program of focusing on two extremes, that of tarmac and Acropolis-style gravel, would not compromise it here. Colin Dobinson's engineers had spent August 1992 at a place called Chateau Lestour in the south of France, with a program aimed specifically at the Greek stages. Indeed, looking at the previous results in the season, you can see uh, they had been born from this focus. Second and third in Monte Carlo, first and second in Portugal, where they romped away on the early tarmac stages and then preserved their lead on the later loose surface running, uh, while misfortune befell some of their competition. Then another victory in Corsica, courtesy of a flying Francois Delacour on his favourite surface, who never looked in doubt of finishing anywhere but the top step of the podium on the island. Now, they had arrived at their toughest test yet. I would find out if Chief Engineer John Wheeler had created a car capable of seeing off the might of Lancia and Toyota in the mountains of Greece. The Escort stood out a couple of ways from its competition, namely its seven-speed box and its longitudinally mounted engine. Some trivia for you now, Jamie. Which two of the other four-wheel drive Group A cars in this event are shorter than an Escort Cosworth? One of them is easy, but I fear you might struggle to get the second one on your first goal. Delta? Yep, naturally enough. 3,900 3, 3, millimetres. The Escort's 4,211 Group A, so mm-hmm. nothing group, obviously nothing group A. Um, uh, the four-wheel drive, the top flight four-wheel drive Group A turbo cars. Even though, even though my eyes say it shouldn't be, I'm going to say the Evo 1 Mitsubishi, even though it doesn't look it. Is that, is that, no, no. Incorrect. No. The legacy. Really? Bollocks. Like, I, oh, you know. First, it's it's being told that that bare stats tell me that the Octavia isn't much bigger, if at all, than than other WRC cars, and now the unofficial longest Group A rally car of them all isn't. Well, but this is just the deception of car design and how big cars are are getting as and growing, I suppose, over the years. And you have the you know the thing now of the picture of a Volkswagen up next to a Mark One Golf, and it dwarfs it. Yes, I mean, I, 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 I 
um, st- the hill I'm dying on is the Mark II Granada Estate is the longest car ever produced, despite <laughs> all stats that might say otherwise. Yeah, no, no American station wagon can be bigger. Bigger. Than looks it. it. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a closing statement on the Cosworth itself. I found a quote from what I said to be a rival team engineer in the 1993 rally course annual, which I thought was interesting, and cast some light on how other teams viewed the Escort. It's as follows. If the Escort Cosworth does or does not win next year, it will not be down to the car they homologated, but how well Ford Motorsport exploits it. Though maybe 1994 was the fault of a twin-turbo Italian V8. Ford's driver pairing of Delacour and Biazian. The two drivers here, oddly enough, that I have actually met, um, now I think of it, uh, was an incredibly strong one. The champion in waiting of Delacour, one of the hottest properties in early 90s rallying. This is where Jamie pipes up about an F40, I'm sure. Uh, I see him waiting. You've done that, man. I'm not yeah. I'm keeping to him. I was going to mention mm. the Citroen ZX Volcane that, that had the audacity to get in the way. I'm saying <laughs> I was also going to say, what's Delacour like to meet? I mean... <laughs> oh, well, I, I say meet. It was a very brief encounter on the streets of Monte Carlo. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, whereas I actually exchanged words with Biazian. Um, not many either, but anyway. So yeah, Delacour and the multiple world champion of Biazian, uh, who had committed himself to Ford as he saw no future with the team that had gave him so much success, Lancia, wanting to see the Escort become a championship winning car. Delacour coming into the event was leading the Drivers' Championship just ahead of Juha Kankinen. Brings us neatly to Toyota Team Europe. They may not have had a driver leading the championship, but it could be pretty confident about that not being the case coming out of Greece. The Salika ST185 was a technical tour de force, and certainly the car every other team was usually worried about. The ST185 had already taken the now-departed Carlos Sainz to his second world championship, though that didn't give Toyota a manufacturer's title in 1992. This was something TTE were determined to change. They wanted both crowns this time out. Ovi Anderson's outfit and chief engineer Dieter Bulling had produced a car that had so far won on three out of the previous five events and finished second on another. The missing round? Well, they just didn't turn up to that one. Developed with the aid of some ex-Audi engineers, a car that was initially troubled in early 92, before Michel Nandan had helped fix issues with the suspension. Its extract transmission and differentials had proven to be rugged enough to contend with the Kenyan Safari, and good enough for the pace to win in Monte Carlo and Sweden. It also had pop-up lights, always a win, even if they are fixed in the upright position on the rally car. PTE's leading drivers were three-time world champion, at the time, Juha Kankinen, of moustache fame, and Didier Auriel, of receding hairline fame. <laughs> That's the second driver, poor, poor Didier. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Didier. <laughs> Though many would pilot a Salika throughout the campaign, including Yves Lube, father of Pierre-Louis, who currently pilots a Puma for M-Sport, the Greek classic would see the main pairing of Cankers and Oriel be the only two TTE entries. Each had a win apiece at this stage of the championship, Mats Janssen having won in Sweden. Oriel had won here in 92, and an Integrale was no doubt keen to replicate that feat. Cankers and Oriel sound like a 1980s detective outfit. I'd watch that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With like big, <laughs> big shoulder pads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Lots, <laughs> lots of cigarettes and... 
Oh yeah, uh, but an Ariel probably could have had a perm in the eighties as well. You know, don't play by the book. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> One's the grizzled, no nonsense. Uh, you know, doesn't play with the rules. Tankers, Cast, yeah. tank, tankers is the yeah. fiercely <laughs> by the book and stuck in his ways. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in uh, at the Jolly Club corner, with the days of factory-backed martini livery, Lancia is now over. It fell to Jolly Club to fly the flag for one of the greatest brands to ever grace the World Championship. Gone also was Totip, and now with the arrival of Carlos Sainz, we had Repsol livery Deltonas. One of the plucky underdogs of the World Championship for years now, Jolly Club had a big presence on the rallying scene, delivering... Adartico Vudafieri to an Italian championship win in the 308 GTB in 1982. Campaign 037's throughout the Group E era with Biazian being a team member before moving to the works team. And then in the late 80s ran Group N Deltas. Alex Fiorio, son of Cesare, claimed a 1987 FIA Cup for drivers of production cars, basically the Group N championship, in a jolly club ran Delta. And in 91, the team had its first outright world championship victory, courtesy of Didier Oriel, then in a FINA liveried care. The arrival of the Deltona in 92 saw it only pass straight into the hands of Jolly Club, with Fiat after pulling the backing for rallying. And with this being the zenith of Delta development, the car in 1992 won eight rounds and a manufacturer's title, likely aided by the early struggles of the ST185s. This was evidently enough to draw Carlos Sainz away from the warm, cosseting embrace of the well-funded Toyota team Europe he'd just won a driver's championship with and signed with Johnny Club for the 1993 season in perhaps one of the most famously or infamously mis- misjudged driver moves in rallying history. The allure of winning in Lancia must have proved too strong for El Matador to resist. By this point, the Delta was far too long in the tooth and despite the best efforts to keep it competitive, the end was nigh. The bigger arches of the Evo model couldn't fix the limited suspension travel, nor hide the fact that this car's genesis was now nearly a decade ago. Joining signs in the Lancia stable for Acropolis was Italian ace Andrea Aghini, probably most well regarded for his exploits on asphalt. Alghini had won in San Remo the, the previous year and had achieved a podium in Portugal thus far in 1993. Also in a jolly club Lancia was Uruguayan Gustavo Trellis, who had always proven strong in tougher gravel rallies and had previously driven Lancias with Astra Racing, who indeed were also here on this event. Interestingly, Sainz Delta was shot in Michelin tyres, while the other two were war Pirelli, Pirellis. Astra Racing could enjoy the services of someone I mentioned earlier, Alex Fiorio, backed behind the wheel of a Delta Integrale after his unsuccessful spell in Sierra Sapphires in 1991. It had a decent run in 1992, with a couple of fourth-place finishes in the World Championship. Backing up Fiorio at Astra Racing was mediocre Finnish driver who we never saw much from later in his career, Tommy Mackinnon, fresh from a year driving overheating sunny GTIRs and arriving in Greece, shuddering at the thought of what the underbonnet temperatures of a Group A sunny would be like and the conditions they were about to face. Andrew Cowan's rally art were now in their fourth full year in the World Rally Championship, and like Ford, were also in the possession of a newer, smaller car in the form of the Lancer Evo 1, the forgotten Evo, if you will. This replaced the Galant VR4. More trivia for you here, Jamie. What does VR4 stand for? I don't know. It's something really... 
something really mundane. I bet the V is very <laughs> variable. Mm, not sure. No, a variable road. No, I don't. I don't know what is it. Viscous real time four wheel drive. That's one of those Japanese early nineties things when when just like the English language sounded a bit exotic, doesn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> I've I've also seen it mean viscous real time four wheel drive with four wheel steering. So I don't know. Uh, although Never. obviously the Evos didn't have that, but they did the, the GTO or the three thousand GT had four wheel steering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The car I mean, got less complicated as its life went on. I mean, also as much as you know, viscous dips are all very cool, you don't want viscous. Viscous isn't a good word, is it's not it? A glamorous it's word. Not, not a glam. Nothing glamorous is viscous. No, no, the Italians could probably do something with it, but the Japanese aren't going to make a, a cool name from it. Oh, what do you <laughs> Come on, Italian Italian listeners, can we have what Italian is for viscosity, please? I bet that's good. <laughs> <laughs> the Galant had delivered marvellous success, and the team finished third in the championship in 1990, picking up a scattering of wins, including three on the Ivory Coast, a favoured haunt of Rally Art between 1989 and 1992 before the rugby based team came to the conclusion that they like Ford and Subaru needed to migrate their mechanicals into a smaller lighter and more nimble package thus creating the Group A Lancer once again utilising the 4G63T power plant mounted transversely with this effort Rally Art needed to do what Toyota had managed a few years prior and move away from being a team that could go and win on African endurance events and challenge an outright pace too the drivers enlisted to enact that challenge were Sweden's Kenneth Eriksson and Germany's legendary, to us at least, Armin Schwartz. Eriksson had been with the team some time now and had delivered the now-retired Galant to multiple podiums and a victory in the WRC. Eriksson had been having a so-so season thus far, finishing fourth in Monte and fifth in Portugal in the new Lancer. Schwartz, like Eriksson, had joined the team from Toyota, albeit just this year, and had a new co-driver in the form of Nicky Grist. Schwartz was well known for his ability to test and develop a car, along with deliver solid results, and no doubt it was this development prowess that attracted Andrew Cowan to him as the Lancer arrived on the stages. Greece was the third event for both drivers so far in the 93 season, and Schwartz so far had managed a sixth place in Monte before putting the car off in Portugal and retiring. And last but not least, Subaru. David Richards had won this event previously as Ari Vatanen's co-driver, now he was vatting his boss and hoped his team could deliver their first world championship win for the now state express backed pro drive. It's first year running the colors they would forever be associated with blue and gold. The car that made the blue and gold world famous was but a few months away. So it still fell to the venerable legacy, a car that Conor McRae initially preferred to the Impreza to do the business for them. I'll be honest. I love a legacy, but I don't think the 555 colors work on them as well as they do on the Impreza. No, and also, you know, we kind of have to say that given that the podcast we're currently doing has a logo inspired entirely by the, the greatest football away goalie kit ever. Yes, yes. And the LNX care is quite a quite a tasty piece as well. Quite simple, I know, it's just, it seems almost lazy, you know, because, you know, white and we'll dash some stuff at it, but it works. And I just don't think the, the 555 colours worked on the Legacy quite as well. There's something about legacies that attracted I mean it's definitely because they were there when they were then when they were being rallied in the early 90s but Pierre Eliati's pink and blue job with with white 
at um, uh, what they call wheel, um, the speed lines. Either way, that that had a fairly fairly eye catching ninety spec as well. And know? it was the the Per Eklund yellow camel get up. Yeah, it was Per Eklund, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was Per Eklund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, give me one of those liveries any day of the week. The best sounding car here by a country mile. The legacy had really hit its stride of late, right before its retirement. The flat four power unit was now much, much better than of years past, now that engine development take, was taking place in England rather than in Japan. It had won the British Championship in 1992 and 1991 in the hands of McRae, and it scored podiums on the world stage. Famously, ProDrive had run the engine without water, without it failing, surely a good omen for managing the strain of this event. The newly renamed Subaru 555 World Rally team were confident that their first World Championship win was just around the corner. As already mentioned, the Subaru team consisted of Finn and war- war- former world champ Barry Vatnin, still very much capable at this point in his career, and young Scott Colin McRae. McRae had seen his way to a podium in 93's Rally Sweden and an admirable fifth place in Corsica, with an interlude along the way of taking a little Vivio to Safari where he failed to finish. Acropolis would be the first event in the 93 season for Vatnin, however. With the main contenders out of the way, it's time for some honourable mentions and some shank right up our street from further down the entry list of the 93 starters for the event. Bruno Theory would contest the Formula 2 category in his Astra GSI, partnered on the notes by Sebastian Prevo, making another appearance from earlier. He would face competition from the Skoda favourites of Emil Treiner and Pavel Sibera. Numerous Mazda 323s graced the event in both GTR and GTX form. Great looking cars, though, never up to much in, ter- in the reliability stakes. They were competing in the Greek Group N Championship. Rudolf Stoll was entered in his Group A Audi S2 Coupe by SMS, one of the forgotten cars of the early 90s, perhaps. A brave soul was campaigning a different Audi in 90 Quattro, and the Hellenic Police had entered an EP81 Starlet. It's a bubbly Starlet to our Irish listeners. There was also numerous Lada Samaras, a Yugo and a Wartburg, fresh from the fall of the Iron Curtain, along with some Daihatsu Charades, a Group N Mercedes 190E, a BX GTI and an Alpha 33 4x4, making up an incredibly eclectic entry list that included current FIA president Mohammed bin, bin Suleim, co-driven by Irishman Ronan Morgan in a Group N Escort Cosworth. I love the Wartburg. <clears throat> love the Wartburg. I mean, it could probably, you know, run on nothing and was like incredibly basic and functional and, you know, it's probably like two stroke air cooled or something. Probably was. I think it was, I think there was two, all two stroke as well, because as we know, four strokes are for the bourgeois. Oh, exactly. Um, Yeah. 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 Second capitalist strokes. Yes. You might get away with the third stroke, but by the time you got to the fourth one, you were basically sent straight oh, to right. the gulag. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamie, presented with the teams and crews as they were, put yourself into the shoes of a rally journal in a dusty service park in Athens this, this Saturday night before the rally. As you retire to the nearest taverna for some gyros and a few shots of Uzo, who are you fancying to win out over the next few days? So... Absorbing the fantastic picture, really. I'm, I'm there. I guess the heart, the head would say, uh, Kankadan, uh, in a, in a Salika, um, purely because it was so 
well sorted. I mean, you know, ninety two, as you as you alluded to, it had its um, duff, slightly tricky handling where they had to resort to locking it fifty fifty split differential, which probably wouldn't hurt too much in Greece anyway. Um, but from this point, it was well sorted, uh, fairly bulletproof. Um, and I guess if I was going to take a punt on an outside. Despite a contrary running contrary to all uh, expectations, I probably would have gone for science in a in the Delta purely because a reliable car come this point in time, an old head on young shoulders in in, in Carlos Science um, and, and the guy who could be relied upon to get the car to the end. You know, I think that that's that would have been my my outside bet. Yeah, I think those would be absolutely wise choices because the Lancia, for all its faults in terms of keeping up with the competition. Those will be mitigated on an event like this, and you could depend. There at the end. Yeah. yeah, as you say, and and with the likes of science as well, he was always one for a, as you say, a wise head and a cool a cool head in in a, in a hot condition. So you could depend on him to be there, and if things go his way, he could, you know, inherit a win as much as anything else. But although that seems like rather disingenuous to say, because being there to inherit yes. it is just as important. That's rallying, eh? Absolutely. The main service halts for the 93 Acropolis were at Levadia and Macrocomi. Um, roadside servicing was allowed, but only between certain stages. The first of 36 stages would commence before 10 o'clock on Sunday morning after the cars went over the start ramp in Athens at half eight in the shadow of the Acropolis. Stage one, a 10 kilometer test, saw the pair of legacies set the early pace with Vatten and McRae topping the timesheets. The Finn just one second ahead of McRae, who was matched by Kankinen, and 14 separate seconds separating the leader from 10th place at the end of the stage. Rudy Stoll had an early bath when his Audi's five-cylinder engine went kaput in the first stage, one of two early retirements, while the chap in the Audi 90, we mentioned earlier, took nigh on 20 minutes to complete the stage. Note, I haven't attempted to pronounce his name in the interests of diplomacy. Battenin was again fastest on SS2, the 25-kilometre Kineta stage. Second fastest was last year's winner, Oriel, in his Salika, with McRae third, no trailing Oriel by five seconds, and with Battenin already holding a 10-second lead. The pair of escorts, meanwhile, had started to gain ground, elevating themselves to fifth and sixth overall, with times quicker than cankers and signs. Two more retirements came on the Kineta stage, including the Alpha 33 I mentioned earlier. On stage three, Biazian, who had come third in Greece the previous three outings and had won there in the past, was finding his feet, coming closest to Vatnen, who claimed a third stage win on the bounce, and now led by 15 seconds over Oriol. The top three remained unchanged, but Biazian was threatening to slip past Kankinen for fourth. It was this stage that saw Kenneth Eriksson exit the event, with Lancer's front suspension collapsing under the battering of the Greek roads, leaving Schwartz to battle it out for Rally Art's glory. Vatanen really had the bit between his teeth, though, his legacy throwing grey plumes of dust behind as he ramped to another stage win on the 10.75-kilometre-long stage four and looking unmatched for pace despite the best efforts of those around him, with McRae looking comfortable in third place ahead of Kankinen. Still, though, with 32 stages to run, it's very early to start making predictions on an event like this, despite the legacies looking like the class of the field. Stage 5 was another Vatanen win, this time with Francois Delacour two seconds behind on the timesheets, though he was still in sixth overall and close to a minute off the lead, and behind his teammate by Asian. Vatanen was certainly a flying fin on that Sunday, 
now commanding close to 30 seconds in hand over second-placed Oriel after just five stages. Stage six was a shorter affair than what had come before, over eight kilometres, and for the first time, we had a new stage winner in the form of Mickey Biazian. Vatanen was four seconds behind, and with his time of six minutes, 34 seconds, the same as Francois Delacour. Andrea Aghini had now managed to get into 10th overall here, but was three minutes off the leader. It had been a quiet run so far for the Lancias, with signs plugging away in 7th, a minute off the lead. Subaru's winning ways at the front resumed on stage 7, with Vatanen fastest, 10 seconds quicker than McRae, who had now elevated himself to 2nd place, as Oriel ran into trouble and lost over 2 minutes, dropping now to 8th overall, his teammate inheriting 3rd. It was Delacour who pipped Vatanen to another stage win on the 8th test of the first leg. The escorts now quietly moving up the timesheets and were looking like potential threats to the Toyotas, if not the Subaru pair at this time. With Schwartz not making a huge impact in his Lancer so far, and the Lancia is seemingly the fourth fastest car currently. With Biazian and Delacour, fourth and fifth respectively at this time. Bruno Thierry had injured his hand earlier in the day and crashed out on this stage, no doubt struggling with the injury. Stage 9 was another forward stage win, this time courtesy of Biazian and the 69 kilometer stage, one of the shortest of the event, though still not troubling the Subarus, it did slot him ahead of Juha Kankinen at the third overall. It was also the first time Alex Fiorio got a top 5 stage time. Stage 9 also saw the unfortunate retirement of Didier Auriel, who had earlier cracked his sump on a road section of all places, and engine trouble saw him out of the event and unable to repeat his victory of the previous year. You'd really be surprised that you could manage to crack your sump on a road section on, in Greece, given the condition of the stages and the sort of conditions that the cars go through on it, to survive all that and then bust the sump on a road section. Given that it obviously poses running a like, lot more questions, doesn't it, than it answers? Yeah. I mean, it's not like they're <laughs> running like San Remo right height. Um, so, yeah, puzzling one, but yeah. Stage 10, the 14.45 kilometre stage of Kolopsky was added to Vatnin's tally as a time of 12 minutes, 13 seconds was enough to deny it, pushing hard Delacour. Though Delacour's time was enough for him to overhaul Kankinen and Grist for fourth. Now it was Subaru 1-2-4-3-4. The 19.5 kilometre stage 11 was the end of the first leg, with things continuing as they had done all day, and another Vatnin fastest time, leaving the order of the top five unchanged overnight. After 11 stages and 163 stage kilometres, it looked like the legacies would be unmatched for pace and were so far handling the conditions well. It seemed like only the rally biting back might hamper their progress over the coming days. It was an early start on Monday for the 75 remaining crews, departing the overnight hall to commence leg two, with the first car roaring away on stage 12 at 7.53 in the morning. The eight and a half kilometre long bauxite or boite stage and... Um, Used to make aluminium, Jamie. I looked it up a while ago. For it makes it makes it's used in making alumina, which did makes aluminium. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I knew from my World War Two history it was important. Yeah. We had a new stage winner, Carlos Sainz, just one second ahead of Delacour and seven faster than Vatanen, who came off the stage still leading McRae by over a minute and a comfortable lead. Stage thirteen was unlucky for some. Indeed, those were Conor McRae and Derek Ringer who went off fatally damaging the suspension on their legacy and putting them out of the rally, with stage winner Biazian moving into second place, while Delacour now filled the remaining podium position. 
Vatnin had his lead over Bayazi and slashed by 22 seconds on stage 14, which was won by Sainz. Valencia is looking much pacier than they had the previous day, with Fiorio, Aguini and Mackinnon putting in respectable times slightly further down the order. Delacour was determined to get ahead of his older teammate. He put in the fastest time on stage 15, beating Biazian by nine seconds to now come within six seconds of the other fourth crew. Vatnin was 10 seconds behind Delacour, but still not in immediate danger. With another two stage wins by Delacour in the following two tests, it did seem like the escort was now the strongest challenger and Vatnin's lead was down to 24 seconds after stage 17. Delacour could taste the blood in the water. Stage 18 saw signs add another stage win to his own tally, just ahead of Armin Schwartz, but Vatnin had lost another eight seconds to Delacour. The Finn was now being reined in. We had another new stage winner on, on the stage 19, as Armin Schwartz, now sixth overall, came out on top over Sainz. Ari, however, was determined to build up his gap again, and a flying performance on stage 20 put him another eight seconds clear of Delacour, now 22 seconds in the lead, with Biazian biding his time in third, 30 second, 30, 37 seconds off the lead. Stage 21 saw a disaster strike to veteran Finn, actually two veteran Finns. Vatanen had an accident while pushing hard and was punished by now being out of the event, while Juha Kankinen's normally robust Salika power plant failed him in the punishing conditions. There was a new rally leader, and it was Francois Delacour, no doubt with his sleeves rolled up well past his elbows by now, and Carlos Sainz now third, followed by Schwartz and fourth, in sight of a podium he may not have thought was on the cards. Biazian, meanwhile, was struggling. Anti-roll bears had been ripped off by the rocks and he was understeering a lot. The Fords had been troubled by fuel injection issues and fuel pump issues previously, and Biazian was now down to just one fuel pump and crawled off the stage. Delacour, though, was cost nearly four minutes due to overheating on the last stage of the day and crawled home overnight, resulting in the top three at the end of the second leg plane, Biazian, Sainz and Schwartz, with Sainz two and a half minutes behind Biazian. You could scarcely believe that that's how it would look after the way it looked halfway through the second leg. Oh, totally. I mean, especially considering um, Vatanen was able to, when he, when he was losing time hand over fist to Biazion and early in the day and then managed to, to reverse it by a fairly hefty eight seconds or so. Generally, I mean, I guess it's all going well until it's not, isn't it? But um, yeah, uh, you'd, th- you'd think he'd have that in hand. It was, it's on and off when I was looking, when I was writing this and looking through stage times and stuff, that a lot of the times... Or, or or the stages where like time was made or rather lost came on some of the shorter ones rather than you know it's often the big lengthy one that someone just goes fuck it and pulls yeah. you know 20 seconds out of a guy over 25 30 kilometers or whatever it is but there was a fair few despite like it was a long event but there was a fair few kind of 8 10 12 that kind of way stages and often there was four and six seconds being exchanged on those ones, which is kind of unusual on the shorter stuff. But again, it's it's the thing with Greece, isn't it? Because you can't fully commit yourself almost anywhere, you know, unless you, you're running serious risks. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to find a, a, a picture of um, a, a Batman's accident uh, or what, what put him out. But I haven't found anything so far. Yeah, I couldn't find it, but there a big rock uh, was there somewhere along the way anyway. Naturally. <laughs> Delacour started the final day matching his teammate on the opening stage while Sainz picked up a penalty uh, now relegating him to third 
though signs and Delacour traded fastest times over the next few stages, and signs would indeed actually end up with the most stage wins, they were miles off the lead. But there was some late drama and some hope reappeared for them as at the service point before stage 31, a very concerned Mickey Biazian was explaining to his team that his car had just caught fire. The chance of his first win in three years was now hanging in the balance and if his escort couldn't get him to the end and stave off Sainz, it was all over. It was now a battle for survival. But Biazian kept his head and nursed the escort home with coolant temperatures north of 120 degrees Celsius and it being so hot in the inlet he basically had no boost. Biazian made it to victory with his two and a half minute lead becoming a one minute 13 lead at the end. The experienced champion doing what he had to do to finish the rally and return himself to the top step of a WRC podium after a mature performance and did not put a scratch on the car while so many fell off around him. It also cemented the potential of his, of the escort amongst its rivals. And it was to be a car to be contended with over the coming few years. And that is the 1993 running of the Acropolis. And I think as much as the Subaru crews could rue what happened, and I'm sure David Richards had some strong words for his drivers at the end of the Saturday, I think probably Delacour was the most frustrated after it all. Yeah, I think I think he, the, the, him and Biazian and that team, they didn't really see eye to eye. Their work ethics were, it wasn't that one worked hard the other, but they went out their business in very different ways. And I know that nobody liked um, Biazian's co-driver who had the nickname of Engineer Saviero because he would be the one coming around making decisions about tyres and setup and all this and kind of leaving Biazian to focus on getting his headspace right. And people didn't seem to like that. Um, <laughs> but they were both very, very different. And I, I think they didn't really, really see eye to eye. But uh, yeah, late drama. I mean, it was a, it's a good one. I mean, people, again, with Greece, it's people falling off along the way. The legacy should have romped home. I mean, they had clearly had the reliability. They were tough, you know, and two capable drivers, but just bitten hard at the wrong time. Also, more drama when you delve into it than would appear to be the case from the finishing margins. You know, yes. looked at them like for without knowing the full story, you think one minute thirteen seconds over sight was a fairly healthy one, but of course, as you say, it's Greece and it took a lot to get that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and they. Ford were really worried about the fuel system giving up and even Biazian's fuel tank had been replaced the night before the car caught fire so when he saw the car filling up with smoke he didn't know it was just it was actually just a relatively trivial thing in the end it was like a wiring harness on the fuel pump but he's going oh shit the fuel the fuel tank had been changed and now is there is there a leak is there something going on is the whole car going up Um, you know and there was lots of moments where you know the likes of at one point, Delacour went with his, his fuel pumps failing it to just turn the boost right back and crawl through, which is not something you maybe associate with Delacour. But, you know, he kept himself in contention, although he did launch the car into the trees at one point as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not on. I, I only just realized and I could be this might be common knowledge. Uh, Alex Fiorio's co-driver in this event is uh, Vittorio Bambrilla, Brambilla, rather the I assume uh, former F1 driver uh, who who won, I think, for March, won F1 race uh, in the 70s. Oh, I mean, the, nice, the, nice spot. I wonder well, if... I mean, it could it... be a different Bambrilla, um, but it's the same name. Um, and I don't know. Who knows? How many Vittorio Brambillos can there be? Probably loads now that we say Bram... 
I mean, Alessandro Fiorio and Vittorio Brambilla might be the the, the most evocative Italian name and crew ever to compete a rally. So, but yeah, I mean, let's see. Mm. You know, doesn't say anything. Obviously, Brambilla doesn't say anything on his. uh... Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm just on his Wikipedia, and it doesn't. It doesn't. He opened in the early 1990s a Formula One memorabilia shop, and he died while cutting his grass. Um. (laughs) <laughs> Appropriately what? enough for a racing driver, he died at a place called Lesmo. Really? Can hell. I, yeah. Uh, how do you die anyway? I died by cutting your grass. Fucking hell. Yeah, maybe it's a different Brambrilla, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. That's one for further uh, further investigation. Um, so, yeah, no, that was, that was interesting, I think. Um, this year's, don't think there's going to be much. Dry, dusty, hot rooster tails, and all this happening at this year's Acropolis. Um, no, it's all looking a um, bit resolving from the Margan Parky. Yeah, I think you know, amphibious vehicles uh, might need to be roped in. Um, as of the time of recording, Shakedown has been cancelled, um, and who knows what the weekend could bring. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and I've just clicked on this guy's EWRC, and this particular Brambilla was co-driving in 2012. So, not ah, the guy, not the no. guy who died cutting his grass. Maybe his son or something. Because there's all the the, the Fiorios had good Formula One connections and stuff. You know, maybe they're all from the same area. Who knows? <laughs> Nepotism in Italian mm-hmm. racing—that doesn't sound like a, a yeah. Story. It's normally at this time that I say, you know, what are your thoughts about? Who's going to come out on top at the current at, at the Acropolis that's due to start in the coming days? But given the way the roads look, it's really anyone's guess. Point. I'm going to go Oitanak. I always say Oitanak, and I'm never right, but I'm going to go Oitanak because one of these days will be correct in the same way that Danny Solar is going to be the future world champion. At some point. I don't know if it'll be correct on this one. I the Puma hasn't always proven itself to be the hardiest of machines, but who knows? Maybe it'll do better in the floods than it will in the the dry the one that looks most like a beached whale and so perhaps that'll help mm, maybe maybe follow me for more insider rally trading tips <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much for that Killian um, that was fantastic and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening once again um, we apologise for Again, for there being a bit of a, a delay between this and the last episode. Um, but as, as Killian said, real life occasionally gets in the way. Uh, we'll endeavour to be back with more regular features and regular content. The the next uh, one in this series of, of WRC event reviews, uh, we're going to do one um, looking back at Rally Germany uh, for Rally Central Europe uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, so tune in for lots of Hinkelstein-related conversations. Yes, absolutely. And although that is toward the end of October, we will get something out in the meantime um, as well to break that up because obviously Rally Chile does not give us a whole pile of a back catalogue to delve into, but we will do some more of with some more regular Rally DNA content in the meantime. Uh, thanks very much again for listening, Jamie. Thank you. It's been great to listen to your uh, review of the 2003 Acropolis. Um, you have me dreaming of BP and Castro livery rotary focuses for the coming evening. Um, and anyone who is after travelling to 
Greece for this year's event. Take it easy and be careful in the conditions out there. And we'll see you again the next time. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening and goodbye.